we came together as a leadership team and really discussed, you know, what is our new, what is our new mandate during this time? And what are we going to communicate is the most important thing for everybody to do. Um, so, you know, pre-COVID, you know, we talk about things like we have to convert as many restaurants as we can, or we have to get a certain revenue from our clients. And those are two competing interests. And so one leader saying one thing and the other leader saying the other thing, people are going to run in different directions. So our goal has always been to set sort of company goals, we call them rocks, company rocks at the top that everybody can move towards. And so everybody's pushing those rocks in the same direction. Welcome to Startupville, the show where we discuss what it's like to build a tech startup and a startup ecosystem in a small city. I'm Mike Wolsfeld, our host is Dan Gold, and we're having conversations with tech leaders in our community about how they're working through the current global economic crisis and the larger implications on their sectors. Today we're talking with Justin Holmes, VP of Growth at Seven Shifts, one of Canada's fastest growing tech startups, helping restaurants to be more efficient and to better engage their workforce. What do you do when your entire customer base is forced to shut down? In the face of a global pandemic, restaurants everywhere had to pivot their businesses like they never had before. So we talked with Justin about the many ways in which the industry has been impacted and how Seven Shifts has stepped up to help their customers keep moving forward during unprecedented times. Welcome to Startupville. Startupville is brought to you by Innovation Place and Martin Charlton Communication. So Justin, VP of Growth at Seven Shifts, as Mike has already uh, mentioned, you're based in the Toronto office. Um, uh, what's your background prior to joining Seven Shifts? Uh, yeah, for sure. So I um, have kind of always been interested in entrepreneurship and kind of the startup world. When I was first went to university, I started a basketball camp of my own, which uh, you know I thought would be super simple. I played basketball in high school. There weren't a lot of camps in Toronto. Um, so me and a friend went off and started it. We had 12 kids the first summer. <laughs> it was not, did not go well. Um, and that kind of taught us the like, uh, I, I think the ability to like really grind our way through starting something fresh and, and how much work it took. And so I just love that. Um, and the camp still runs today. It's a sort of not-for-profit inner city youth in Toronto, um, coaches about six, 700 kids a year, except for this year, obviously with the current state of the world. So excited to get back to it next year. Um, and that kind of launched me into always wanting to be with early stage company or companies where you could get to do a little bit more. So uh, after university, I went to a small business that sold a gift card that's accepted at spas across Canada. I got a bit more experience there and then went back and did an MBA and got the opportunity to join a company called Nix, which is a, a fast growing startup here in Toronto. I met the founder just at a, a job fair. Um, we had a lot of similarities, but different skill sets. And I joined right after they had a huge Kickstarter campaign. And that was sort of my first uh, really cool experience with like a really fast growing startup. Um, and I just kind of fell in love with it. So did a little bit of sort of everything there, focused most of my time on digital acquisition um, and just growing, growing revenue. Um, and after being there for just under three years, I uh, was introduced to Jordan at Seven Shifts and had always wanted to go back to the B2B side. Um, just it was a bit more closer to home with the camp I had started with software services that are supposed to help you know entrepreneurs and at seven shifts we service a lot of small and medium-sized businesses so a lot of grassroots local businesses so that was really close to my heart um and the experience at nix was unbelievable but I, I really wanted to always be in b2b so when i got that opportunity i i made the shift so you you uh made that shift to to b2b 
Um, your introduction to the company, what did you know about Seven Shifts before meeting with Jordan or was that kind of the first touch? That was the first touch. Um, a, a, a former classmate of mine works for a venture capital firm called Real Aid Ventures, and they had invested in Seven Shifts. And um, this individual, Jake, had spoken really highly of some of his portfolio companies, particularly Seven Shifts. So my real introduction to the company was from Jake. Um, and he spoke not only really highly of Seven Shifts, but he spoke super highly of Jordan and what he had done so far from Saskatoon and how he had managed to build such a, a great company. And so I had actually been introduced to Jordan about a year before I joined the company. We just went for a coffee when he was in Toronto. Um, so I kind of followed the company a little bit. And then when the opportunity came up, um, it was sort of a, a pretty easy decision for me just because of the excitement of what was happening along with you know, the team and the company Jordan had built to that point. I like the idea that you were attracted to the organization as it was a, uh, a firm that is designed and built to help other organizations succeed and then your growth comes directly from their success i think there's there's a lot of honor in that as a as a system especially in um the tech world where there's there's all sorts of questions at times with organizations and and uh some of them are are in the food sector uh we are in the situation where the world has been knocked sideways um VP of growth. It, it can't be a particularly easy task now uh, at a time when COVID-19 has, has resulted in facilities either not being able to open, not being able to open fully. What's the landscape like from your perspective? Yeah, the restaurant industry got hit pretty hard when everything initially hit. So um, we sort of took a stance of let's figure out how we can best support our customer base during this time. And really, as we chatted with a few of our clients and looked at what was happening, the best thing we could do is share resources on how they could potentially make the shift from dine-in to the only thing they could do, which was delivery and takeout. Um, so we did see you know, a bit of decline in, in our growth. And we also saw we have um, an integration with about a third of our clients where they integrate their point of sale. Um, so you know, we help forecast the labor needs based on their sales data. And this, there's a lot of open data being shared by the point of sale companies as well, showing that restaurant sales just really tanked and, and were really, really hurt for a few months. But we've actually been seeing that the sales numbers have have really increased actually in a, in a lot of the restaurants, obviously very unfortunately that some restaurants had to go out of business. But for those ones who have managed to survive, they've actually they're actually seeing almost the sort of January, February sales numbers that they were seeing um, right before COVID hit. The, the restaurant industry would expect to see higher sales during the summer months. Um, but, you know, I don't think anybody's going to be complaining with the fact that they, they've had a pretty steep recovery, even, even given the lockdowns that are still happening or the restrictions that are still on, on businesses across North America. And the majority of our client base is North America. So I'm, I'm sort of talking more about that market. I don't know too much about the restaurant industry outside of North America in terms of how their sales data is doing, uh, given that we're so focused on the North American market. But it's, it's recovered well, which has been just amazing to see for an industry where you spend so much time getting to know the customer base and getting to know these operators and you, know, you almost feel invested in their growth and excited when you see them expanding or doing well or hearing their great stories. So it was definitely, um, you almost feel like they're almost like part of your, like your extended family. So it was awesome to see that the, that we are seeing the sales numbers pick back up in a lot of areas. So there's two parts to that. Firstly, there is 
um, the restaurant industry isn't necessarily known uh, to be a sector where organisations are particularly cash rich with a lot of uh, money in the bank. They tend to invest in in facility, product, service uh, on a on a on a need basis. So, from what I've observed, there's been a lot of those who have been able to have those reserves have been able to be in that position of of survival and where there's that opportunity to trade depending on what the regulations been territory to territory and then secondly the willingness to be flexible and maybe an insight from you on this one how long have we looked at an industry parts of the industry where restaurants have gone oh takeout or takeaway as we'd say at home that's beneath us we're a dining establishment have you noticed that there's almost like other areas of industry and society there's been a mindset change going this isn't just about survival this is actually finally delivering what customers want yeah for sure it's been so interesting to see the variety across the industry depending on if it's a quick service restaurant a full service restaurant a fine dining restaurant um and, you know, D Danny Meyer was on a podcast and talked really in depth about the different restaurants that, that he works with and owns. And his, the fine dining establishments were ones where he was the most concerned about where, when they were going to get back to normal. Cause so much of that was about the experience where this isn't someone that so someone's going to go on a daily basis for most people. It's like a monthly special occasion. So he had some concerns with the fine dining establishments and their inability to adopt that model of takeout and delivery where we actually have seen some places who have, who have done it because people love their food, but their real big thing is the experience and the ability to share these intimate moments. Um, so I think there's still a segment that will always really cater to that dine and special events moment. But I do think that the industry as a whole has adopted more technology. And I know we were seeing that takeout and delivery they now expected just to be a bigger percentage of their sales. And the best way to do that was to have the proper online ordering platform uh, to potentially be able to service their own delivery and to be on the appropriate apps, as long as the fees were within reason in which a restaurant could still operate. So I do think that it sort of pushed and forced a change and forced certain individuals who um, had been running their businesses in a way that was working for them um, was no longer going to work for them because of their present environment. And we saw a, 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 like a, an array of different tactics. People were doing online cooking shows. People were doing prepackaged meals. Like the amount of creativity that we saw come out even to drive the demand for whether it was the, you know, cooking classes or even like the services they could potentially provide was, was quite impressive. And these were people, I would agree that a lot of them didn't think that they would do um, takeout or delivery because they were worried that their meals wouldn't preserve very well. Obviously like pizza and things like that are very easy and, and fit delivery very nicely, but some other types of cooking maybe doesn't fit as well with the delivery. And I think people are pretty creative in finding solutions in order to be able to service their customer base. Yeah, that's for sure. I, I certainly know that French prep lamb isn't necessarily an ideal meal to, uh, <laughs> to have uh, delivered. But having said that, one of the best things that I watched in March or April, um, there's a friend who's, who's back home. They've got a restaurant. It was, uh, they only had, I don't know, 12 to 16 tables, very small. Um, but really nice and what they did was they moved into the space of doing meal kits 
and getting those delivered around London and then doing live cook-alongs with question and answers and, and doing it all in real time with people and then they cam shared uh, people enjoying the meals if they chose to do that side of it. So I think the innovation has been astounding. I'm seeing a lot of chef friends writing books at the moment uh, and tips and guides, which is brilliant because if there's anything I ever need, it's advice, honestly. From, from Seven Shifts perspective, the marketplace changes. As an organization, how do you structure to make sure that you're still supporting your clients and their clients, but you make sure that you've got that agility to see through to the next phase of this? Yeah, for sure. I, our product team did an amazing job right when this hit of not only opening up the majority of our features to our entire client base, regardless of what um, sort of tier of, of paid platform they were on. We wanted to make sure that they had access to the full suite um, for their ability to manage their business, whether it was still all the employees that they had moved to delivery drivers, or if they unfortunately had to furlough some employees um, and they had less staff because the complexity of scheduling within COVID is even more complicated. So obviously, you know, people are going to be switching shifts more often if Restaurants are under different rules and regulations, um, health checks, which I'll talk about in a second, but even some places have taken the approach of having different groups. So group one can't work with group two and doing that on pen and paper and through WhatsApp and Facebook um, or Excel, which a lot of restaurants do right now is pen and paper is still the most used scheduling tool out there um, is significantly more complex. So we've seen a bit, we haven't necessarily seen like a huge increase in demand, but what we've seen is the people who have come in to try our software are converting at a higher rate than they converted before. And that's really encouraging to see it again, a push towards uh, more adoption to technology. And I think the big thing that our product team did, which was amazing, was they built health checks into our system really quickly. Like within a couple of weeks, they said, you know, we were seeing a couple states and a couple provinces mandate health checks that every restaurant has to get a certain amount of questions answered by their staff to, to ensure that, you know, they are not experiencing symptoms. And actually one of our restaurants or our clients in Toronto, um, fresh restaurants, they had the health authorities come in and check to see if they're doing health checks. And they're like, yep, um, we're doing it with our, our software seven shifts and they showed it. And uh, we got a lot of good compliments on that product. So I think our team did a good job of looking and saying, okay, what is the biggest thing that we can build to help our clients right now? Because there were so many demands from like online ordering to all these different things that they didn't have, but we looked at where do we fall into the software industry within restaurants and what can we build that's gonna add the most value? And they did an awesome job of doing that. So. I, I'm like super proud of the team um, for coming up with that. And, and, you know, our job on the growth side has been to talk to potential customers about it and our current client base about it, just to let them know that we have a tool that can help them run their business correctly during this time. So let's say you're working with a significantly sized group, which I'm, I'm assuming correctly you do. Um, but they're across multiple territories, multiple provinces, multiple states, and states have different state-based requirements was there an effort to um, uh, integrate how it work as territories were different how did how did that particular work say uh yeah brand x is in new york new jersey and in um minnesota and the regulations are different how did the platform help 
So within the different states, there hasn't been so there's a lot of compliance rules before COVID hit as it relates to how hourly employees are paid, how many breaks they're taking, are those breaks happening? Can you prove that those breaks are happening? Um, and so there's something called Fair Work Week as well, which is being adopted by more states. So pre-COVID, we were building compliance features to help adhere to all those rules uh, in California, in New York, um, in Philadelphia. So, so different places in different states had different rules. At the moment, the level of complexity of the regulations isn't very high yet for COVID related rules. Um, from what we've seen, it's basically, you have to do health checks um, for your employees, not necessarily for the guests. And that was kind of the extent of it that we saw. So we kind of, the health checks was the first thing that we built. Um, I'd say if there was a, new states popping up new new sort of mandated regulations we would go and we would build that state specifically because right. we have the the data to show us where brands are so we haven't hit that level of complexity within covid um but it's a really good question and it's definitely something the team's looking at closely that if those complexities do come then we want to make sure that our clients will have the ability to do that and again because it's all based on you know where's your restaurant located it's located in this state that's the regulation here here's the the tool that you need and I would imagine that most regulations around staffing have stayed pretty static or pretty constant at this time as there's been other priorities that they've been dealing with. Uh, yeah, actually, so Chicago pushed through some regulations around um, hourly workers and staffing, which we were really surprised that they didn't delay it given COVID. Um, so, you know, I think a lot of these policies to help whether it's protect the hourly worker or, you know, make sure that businesses are acting responsibly, not that they're not, but, you know, uh, each state is going to have their own committees and laws and, and things that they're going to be trying to pass. So I think for them, because they had already put so much work into it, they knew it was going to be, or what they thought was going to be good for the industry. <clears throat> so they just ended up pushing it through, even given the circumstances. So I was a bit surprised by that, but again, like I totally understand why they would do that given there was probably so much work while well, there obviously was so much work put into getting these things lined up and in place and getting the approvals necessary. So um, that was a bit of the opposite example. Um, and again, if, if we see those things happening, we'll make sure that we're staying informed of them and building the proper tools so our customers can continue to use the software successfully. So from your perspective as the VP of Growth, and apologies if I occasionally look elsewhere, this is very, very strange for me to be recording this outside, purely on the basis that my wife and my children just walked down the path and were calling and waving at me. So if there was an interruption, I apologize for that. They're just now, fans of the podcast. <laughs> Absolutely. I forced them to listen. Um, uh, last episode, it was Hercules the cat. This time, my children. Um, so just on this, uh, Justin, when you look internally, not at the client side, but you and your team working together in a time of uncertainty, knowing that the bulk of the bread and butter is from this sector. When you slow down an organization and you want to retain that agility within your organization, how do you assure people of, of where you are at as leadership? Um, yeah, it's a great question. I think when, when the crisis hit, um, we had to change, obviously, our, our goals. And I think that the 
the big thing that we try to do as a leadership team is make sure that the tone at the top is consistent as we talk to any level of the organization or any of the different teams. And so we came together as a leadership team and really discussed, you know, what is our new, what is our new mandate during this time? And what are we going to communicate is the most important thing for everybody to do. Um, so, you know, pre COVID, you know, we talk about things like we have to convert as many restaurants as we can, or we have to get a certain revenue from our clients. And those are two competing interests. And so one leader saying one thing and the other leader saying the other thing, people are going to run in different directions. So our goal has always been to set sort of company goals. We call them rocks, company rocks at the top that everybody can move towards. And so everybody's pushing those rocks in the same direction. So we just followed the same principles that we always use. Um, we came together, we did a planning session and we, we set what those rocks are going to be. And we communicated them across the whole team. Um, you know, we wanted to assure people, you know, out of any of the doubts, you know, unfortunately we, we did have to furlough uh, 25% of our staff and we've been able to luckily get a lot of those, those folks back on the team. But I think anything we did, we just tried to be incredibly transparent with the team on here's what we're doing and here's why we're doing it. Um, and, and we, we went to doing weekly updates with the company instead of monthly updates with the company. So we just tried to keep the communication as clear as possible. I'd say we went back to the principles that um, had worked for us previously and, and that we try to run the company by and make sure that we adhere to our core values. And, and we just up the level of communication during the time, especially given that, you know, within a week's notice, everybody went from working in the offices to, to working from their houses. Um, and we were probably a little bit lucky that we are a remote company in terms of we have three different offices in Saskatoon, Toronto, and New Jersey. So we were a little bit used to having to do these things over, you know, Google Hangouts or Zoom calls. Um, so I'd say that that was definitely an advantage where we had a bit of experience in it um, before we went into it. Does that kind of answer your question a little bit? No, it absolutely does. And you you mentioned that the furlough scheme absolutely came in, but you've been fortunate to get into that position of bringing as many people back on to this at this date as, as possible. Um, the the future is hopefully we we've learned a lot from the first part of this covid uh situation it's continuing it's not going anywhere anytime soon and and as you've mentioned already there's been this willingness and transition people people still um, as consumers enjoy the food prepared by someone else having it delivered or going to a restaurant with uh, reduced capacity it's still something as human beings that we truly enjoy and i would say if possible we we need it because it's good for us as people uh, not just purely from the economic side uh you mentioned oh okay uh you mentioned it's fine michael editor edit point there we go. Um, uh, y you mentioned that you know there is there is a a time of, a period of change within the industry because it's been enforced. Um, are we back in certain areas at a level of growth in terms of okay we hit a massive downturn but we're recovering from the pit of that, or are we stabilizing from the depth? And we're viewing an increase in not only number of available meals uh, being prepared per day or, or the revenue in the industry, capitalization, etc. Where, where do you see it going just at the current rate and maybe a few weeks out if it's possible with your crystal ball? Uh, yeah, it's always a, always a great question. Um, Investors like that question. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, 
so I think you you sort of you sort of asked a couple of things there, which was um, just about like obviously there was a dip and and how how's the recovery going. So I I think as the regulations remain in terms of capacity for restaurants or bars not being able to have bar service or closing at a certain hour, I don't think that the full sales of the industry can get back to the same level. What we're seeing from our data is that since June. As you know, obviously, lots of places in, in the States and in Canada have started to open back up in some capacity. Uh, the sales have recovered to maybe 70% of where they were at. Um, and they've been pretty stable over the last few months. So I think until the until places can get back to the ability to have more people in the, in the restaurants, and you know, that may, might not be something that happens for a very long time until there's community immunization or a vaccine, um, we'll probably see it stay maybe at 70% of the levels it was before. Uh, to mention this, the, the, you know, we're taking a small subset of, of restaurants that the data that we have or that the other point of sale companies have, and they're looking at integrated restaurants. So you, it doesn't give you the complete picture of the industry because you're not, you're seeing ones who are integrated, which could suggest that, you know, they're more willing to adopt technology and potentially um, they're, they're managing this crisis a little bit better because they've already had all these systems and, and, and things in place. But uh, that's the, I think in the future, we'll see it kind of remain steady and maybe increase a bit. But I think as long as regulations are in place, it's uh, it's going to be hard and you know kind of reference that Danny Meyer podcast he was talking about you know with full server fine dining it's very hard to operate a restaurant at 50% capacity um he was thinking you know for the ones that he had experience with and he's obviously a great restaurateur was like you need 70 to 80% capacity in order to break even so his question was how are people going to make it work um so i know that regulators are keen to get the industry to a point in which they can hit places where they can remain either, you know, break even or slightly profitable to continue to you know, service the economy and service folks who want to go and have that experience. Um, but this is a long winded answer of saying, I think it'll probably stay pretty stable to where it is right now over the next few months. Um, but as communities get more comfortable with uh, less cases, um, you could see capacity increased if it's safe to do so as determined by each, you know, each state or each province or each, each government. One of my one of my friends back home, they um, have instigated a time limit on the amount of time that people can be in the restaurant, because the only way that they can actually be economic to get enough throughput is to time limit the experience within the restaurant. Uh, aside from any regulations that are around, they need to turn the tables three. I think a minimum of three times in that night which is a lot less than the five that they were, five to seven. Um, but th yeah, three times in a service to be economically viable. So it's certainly challenging. And, and, and sadly, I think that, that we will sadly see a number of others go. Um, so where possible, I, I, I implore people, please do support. Uh, the restaurants out there. There are a lot of people doing great work trying to keep that sense of normalcy for us. And uh, let's let's think of these facilities as parts of our community. And um, it, it, it's uh, it's good for us all if we can help them. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And I know that there's programs out there like Rally for Restaurants by Toast, um, and, you know, where they allow people to buy gift cards to to the restaurants that that are their clients. Um, and along with, yeah, the, the turnover per table is, is, is huge. And we've seen that here in Toronto a lot where people are asking, you know, 
stay for 60, 90 minutes max. So they can turn those tables over. Um, yeah, I, I totally agree. We, we encourage, you know, at seven shifts, we used to do weekly lunches and we put that on people's paychecks and, you know, we encourage them to say like, Hey, you know, let's give this right to you and feel free to order from a restaurant client, not a client. You know, we support the industry any, any way we can. Yeah. And I, I think everyone should appreciate that. Um, from your experience and just taking it a bit sideways when you are an organization that has grown as rapidly as seven shifts has how do you then uh, as a piece of advice for other entrepreneurs and, and startups how do you then manage the process of putting on the brakes taking stock and not you know suddenly having zeros on on the balance sheet how do you manage that we've spoken about what you did strategically but how do you manage it from a point of view of making sure that there is an organization that can still thrive that can still employ people the thing that a lot of a lot of people don't often talk about is one of the key responsibilities of an organization with its success and we always say that an organization is truly its people but it's putting meals on the tables of those people and those people for those people's families as well. Um, when you turn down those thrusters and take that step back, how do you, as, as a team, just go, okay, we can do this? Yeah, I mean, it's it's a great question. I think, you know, just to be very candid, obviously, if, um, if a business isn't growing and if it doesn't have either cash in the bank or the ability to produce cash, then it's it's going to be it's going to be rough right like the the obvious the our goal internally and this is a bit specific to seven shifts was to look at what we had on paper before and you know we're a venture back company so we really look in two to three year cycles of we raise money we go out there and we grow and so we have a burn rate and i think for us like we had to look at our and you know this is where the furloughs came in really unfortunately we had to look at the burn rate and say we don't know how long this period is going to be um we do believe that it's going to be a, a period in time. Maybe it's three months, six months, nine months. But we went out there and we just reforecasted kind of to, to the worst case scenario and said, we need to make sure that the business has a few years of capital to make it through this, to get back to a growth level and then be able to, you know, either become profitable or raise more money. Um, so we really took the decision of having to go with the, the furlough path and also cutting, you know, all, all other expenses that we could cut. And we went from burning more money to grow quicker to burning less money to make sure that we maintained and sur survived as a business. And, you know, luckily it was probably, I guess, yeah, maybe three, four, five months and, and we're bringing people back and we're growing again. Um, but what we did is we were able to reassess what we were spending each month. Um, and now we're in a position where we're back growing, we're back with the majority of the staff and we still have enough runway to get to where we want it to be. So we still have enough months of capital to make sure that we're going to, you know, employ the people who are working so hard with us to, to help us achieve the goals. And, you know, everybody at Seven Shifts is an owner. Everybody has shares in the company. And so I think that that level of motivation and, and that mentality really helped as we had to make these tough decisions and, and uh, you know, unfortunately cut spend in certain areas and, and you know, have to do the, the unfortunate um, event of, of furloughing staff. So, does that sort of answer your question? Like we just yeah. took a look, tried to burn less money. Uh, and luckily we've been able to get to a state where we're, we're able to feel confident that, you know, we're going to be around for a long term because we have a great product and a great team and we're trying to do great things for a great industry. Uh, uh, absolutely. And, and one of the things that I have seen from um, 
a couple of startups, not that have been interviewed on Startupville, but I have seen where um, there's been such an obsession with the technology or the technical fix or solving the problem that they haven't been necessarily particularly good business people. And having that balance is absolutely critical because I've seen people run out of money too many times. And if you can't, if you don't know what your costs are, you're just not doing, just, just, just bottom line, you're not doing it right. If you don't, I think it's one of the simplest questions that you can ask anyone in any organizations. Do you know what your costs are? If they have to say, I've got to think about that, or I have to go away and run the numbers and, and stuff like that. Even just ballpark numbers, knowing where money's going out of an organization is, is critical. So just off the back of that and people knowing their, their economic position, um, I've seen something from the UK that I think is quite exciting. I've also seen it um, happening in parts of America where um, uh, bricks and mortar restaurants have also started investing in food trucks as another way to add another line to their business. Um, and then they're putting their staff into those facilities and putting those out into the community, depending on local regulations, because we do know that a number of um, a number of territories and cities around the world are quite anti-food truck. Um, uh, what do you think about that as a strategy to to grow, protect the brand, ensure that the customers are still served? Is that a good way of doing it? Do you think? I think so. I think as long as you do it correctly, it's it's a great way. I think for any you know business, whether it's a restaurant or anything else, really understanding your customer base and and what they want um, is is super key. So if that's food trucks, if that's being able to work with your local government, which I know a lot of places have been able to extend patios onto street areas and close different things down, I think you know wherever your customer is 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 key and however you can get to them is key as well so i i think as long as you understand the costs and you can serve your customer base i, I think it's a great way to try to continue to to service your customers on a regular basis justin i think being customer centric and and helping your customers support their customers is a great place to be uh, if people wanted to find out more information about seven shifts how could they do that and how could they find out more about you uh yeah i mean seven shifts is much more interesting than i am so if uh anybody wants to find out more about seven shifts uh just go to sevenshifts.com um sites there uh there's a media kit on the website as well so you can find anything out about that and yeah if anybody wants to chat i'm always happy to connect with people in the startup industry love chatting with other people doing really cool things uh, my email is just justin.homes at sevenshifts.com feel free to reach out Startupville is brought to you by Innovation Place, helping grow the tech sector in Saskatchewan, Canada, and is produced in partnership with Martin Charlton Communications at WeTellYourStories.ca. The show is produced by me, Mike Wolsfeld, and our host, Dan Gold. Our theme music is from GG Riggs and Reactor Productions. Learn more about us and our guests at innovationplace.com slash startupville, and follow us on Facebook and Twitter at Startupville Pod. See you next time on Startupville.